From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about about the environment and our connections with it. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. In the first half of the show today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Harry Green. He's a professor of evolutionary ecology, amongst other things, at Cornell, and is also the author of the recently released book, Tracks and Shadows, Field Biology as Art. Among a host of other awards that he's received, his last book, Snakes, The Evolution of Mystery in Nature, made the New York Times annual list of 100 most notable books. And then in the second half of the show, we'll speak with Dr. Deborah Davis, an epidemiologist and cancer researcher who lived through the 1948 Denora Inversion, a historic smog event that killed 20 people and sickened 7,000 more in the mill town 24 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. Dr. Davis went on to chronicle this historic event, along with other air pollution episodes in London and Los Angeles, in her best-selling book, When Smoke Ran Like Water. She joins us in the second half of the show to discuss the health impacts from air and water pollution, like that which recently occurred in West Virginia. Right, and she'll also share with us some insights from her latest book called Disconnect, which details the health impacts associated with cell phone use, particularly amongst women and children. Of course, you can join in on today's discussion by posting your questions or your comments to our Facebook page, KPCW This Green Earth, or you can email us at thisgreenearth at kpcw.org. The environment, our connections with it, and impacts upon it. It's This Green Earth, and it all gets started right after these words from our underwriters. Stay tuned. Park City Restore is grateful for the many hands that have made it successful. Your gift of time means more affordable housing services are available locally through Habitat for Humanity. Plus, volunteering at the Restore gives you a first look at the amazing treasures donated for resale. Learn how you can get involved at habitat-utah.org. Click on the big yellow volunteer button. Habitat for Humanity of Summit and Wasatch Counties is a nonprofit organization. Hi, this is Steve Roney with Prudential Utah Real Estate, a proud supporter of KPCW. With more than 100 sales associates and 14 gallery or ski-in offices in Park City, Prudential Utah can help you with your residential or commercial real estate needs. More information at pru-utah.com or with the Prudential Utah mobile search app. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson, and that's Chris Cherniak across the board, Mm -hmm. as always. And uh, in the studio with us this morning is Harry Green. He's a professor at Cornell and also the author of the recently released book, Tracks and Shadows, Field Biology as Art. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Nice to be here, Nell. Hi, Chris. We're always happy to have you in uh, in studio, and it's a rare treat to get the author of a book actually in the studio with us. So uh, thanks for being here. So we want to start out by uh, talking a little bit about your early career. How is it that you got involved with studying snakes? How did that become the focus? My mom was a East Texas uh, farmer's daughter, and so we went back to Grandpa's farm as often as possible. And when I was seven, within within just a few weeks' time, I saw a box turtle, a horned lizard, 
and uh, some kind of small coach whip snake, and it was just love at first sight. Within months, my parents had bought me my first reptile book. Ah. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Where, where were you before you went to East Texas? Well, Somewhere my, where there were no snakes. Well, my dad was in the Air Force, so we lived all over the world. Ah. Um, so we lived in Arizona, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, and so on and so forth. But, but Grandpa's farm in East Texas was where it started for me. Was the, the wealth of uh, herpetology. That's right. Not a rattler. Not then, but within a year or two, I'd seen a rattlesnake in the field and uh, in, the, in the wild on a camp hike. So, so it wasn't long for that. And okay. so from there, you know, obviously at this point you were pretty young. Is this something that you immediately knew you wanted to study as a profession? No. Actually, what happened was I had no idea there was a profession for many years. I, I wanted to be a cowboy or a pioneer, an explorer, something like that, the sort of usual small boy thing in the early 50s. And then when I was 13, my dad got a year off from the Air Force to go to the University of Oklahoma. And one day he came home and said, son, I met this professor who studies lizards and he wants to talk to you. Ah, a life-changing event right there. That's right. And so I went and met this guy, and he had this whole room full of lizards. And I came home that night, and I said, I'm going to be a university professor because they get to keep lizards. <laughs> and so we've, we've gathered, though, that it wasn't a, a straight path for you through your educational career. No. What happened was, uh, because I met these professors early on, I had published my first paper by the time I was 15, and I was really into sort of being a scientist. I was an incredibly nerdy little teenager, and I didn't notice girls. And then uh, when I went off to college, I did. And so uh, within three years, I had a cumulative grade point average of D plus, and I'd flunked out of school at three schools. <laughs> that, that's, just, that's a whole different interview. There's still uh, hope. Exactly. And there was. And eventually you now are a professor at Cornell, yeah. among other things. Yeah. So why are snakes important? What what role do snakes play? Because there are many people in the, on this planet who probably felt like the place would be a better place if there were fewer, if not any snakes at all. Right. So, well, you know, from an ecological point of view, of course, they're, they're major predators. There's about 3,400 species worldwide, and mm -hmm. every single one of them meets other animals. That's, that's how they make a living. So they often play really major roles in local communities and ecosystems. Then there's the human side. You know, why would, why would we care? And, and I would say that they, like a lot of other uh, animals, they're inspirational. I mean, they manage to make it through all kinds of habitats with no legs whatsoever. And perhaps most impressively, snakes can eat something up to about one and a half times their own body mass. Hmm. And that means that they basically only have to go to the grocery store three or four or five times a year, so to speak. So it's an right. incredible lifestyle. Very efficient. Extremely efficient. That's the whole thing about being a snake, sort of keeping risk low and uh, not getting in anybody's way. So give us an example of some of the really interesting snakes that you've come across. Well, I've worked all over the world, so I, I, we, could, we could have a whole hour on that. <laughs> Would right. you like to hear about the biggest snake I ever saw in the wild? Perfect, Absolutely. yeah. Okay, well, I had never seen a giant snake in the field, despite a lot of field work, until five years ago. And my wife works in Brazil, and she and I were wading into a swamp after dark. I was in about <laughs> knee-deep water, okay. and I had a headlamp on, and I looked down by my left foot, and I saw these paired dark circles. They looked like lily pads winding by my foot and in fact my first thought was why are these lily pads underwater and why are they moving and then i realized it was a huge green anaconda wow. and so i watched as her tail went by my boot and i grabbed the tail she of jerked course. free of course <laughs> natural, and, natural uh, reaction she jerked Dive free yeah and uh i saw her in my headlamp just casually she was just swimming unconcernedly and so i straddled her and put my hands down had my right. hands around her body and uh i've never picked up a snake that big so i was afraid to restrain her I finally waited till her tail 
went between my fingers. Her tail's about three inches in diameter. It's a huge snake. And I, st- I stood up, pulled it against my belt, and this enormous torso stood out like a submarine in the water ahead of me, maybe 12 to 15 feet visible, and yet I still couldn't see the head. Wow. And then she just pulled away. That's the last I saw of her. That, you know, it's interesting, uh, Harry, you, you talk about this, that snake in uh, – in terms of a, a she rather yes. than an it, you know, so that there's a connection there. That you- yes, and I could do that, though, because I actually know that all the big individuals of pythons, boas, and anacondas are females. Really? Yeah, and so, I, in fact, I, I know it was a she. It was a she. Yeah, and I think of it as a she. Okay. So, so what's the reasoning for that, for the females being the large individuals? It's apparently so they can have lots of babies. And, in fact, a big, say, a 15 to 20-foot anaconda would have several dozen babies. No, and and typically of a, a brood that size, how many survive? Probably very few. Very so few. even the babies are super vulnerable to everything from, you know, crocodilians to to water birds to uh, jaguars. Fit. Just about anything would eat a, a two foot long baby anaconda. Right, right. Okay. So, um, what about snakes? Say out here. Yeah. What, so, what snakes are, are out here that we should be concerned with? Well, you've only got one snake right right in this general area. You'd have to worry about, and that's our our great basin rattlesnake. Uh, it's not a large species. It's not a species that commonly bit, uh, bites people. And uh, like all the rest of the rattlesnakes that I've studied, it really wants to just stay out of your way. Um, I, I'll just I bet most of us who hike have been by many rattlesnakes we didn't see. Far more rattlesnakes really? have seen us than we've seen. Yeah. Interesting. Been bitten. Oh, that's such an embarrassing question. You know, I, I got bitten as a teenager. You grab anacondas by the tail. So. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I learned my lesson as a teenager. And so uh, uh, young males go through this thing we call testosterone tyranny, where they do stupid things. And uh, I did a stupid thing and, and had a mild bite from a copperhead when I was a teenager. But never again. I'm, I'm very careful around venomous snakes, and I treat them very respectfully when I work with them. I've heard that one sign of a herpetologist is a missing finger. So is that... That's what they call it. We used to call it the herpetologist handshake. And when I was first going to scientific meetings, it wasn't uncommon to meet some famous figure in my field and notice a missing thumb or finger. But it's it's much less common now. We've really gotten away from the old macho uh, penniman pick em up stuff. What what would you say uh, some of the challenges right now with respect to snake habitat are? Have we seen uh, snake extinction anywhere? There are some snake declines globally, uh, not so much in the U.S., although there's there are a few species in the southeast that are like that. In the tropics, the problem right now for snakes is that frogs are disappearing. And so uh, when I worked in Costa Rica, we estimated that almost half the local snake species were frog specialists. And because frogs are disappearing rapidly, especially in the tropics, that really sort of puts uh, a lot of snakes out of business. Hmm. So food source. Food source. That, once again, food source. the linkages. It's a huge connections. thing. Connections. Huge thing. Habitats, you know, if you have habitat destruction, that's a right. big problem. Uh, in some parts of the world, persecution for leather and food's a problem. Uh, so snakes are sort of in the same boat everything else is. Right. On the flip side, are snakes frequently an invasive species in other locations? Not very often, but there are some classic exceptions, especially this thing called a brown tree snake, which basically ate the bird fauna of Guam before it was figured out that mm. it was doing that. And it, it came into Guam on shipping with the U.S. Navy. So it came in when, after the World War II from the Solomon Islands, New Guinea, and basically ate the whole unprepared bird fauna before anybody knew it was doing it. 
Yeah, that, the the reason I asked is because I think there are some prominent cases like that one mm-hmm. where you hear of these snakes. It seems like something that could pretty easily be carried, you know, in a yep. shipping container right. or, you know, a plane or a car. Same thing uh, happened in Hawaii, too, to some degree? Not yet. Not yet. There's but, only one snake that's established in Hawaii. Unfortunately, it's this tiny little blind snake that only eats ant larvae. But there's a massive uh, presence, <clears throat> excuse me, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to keep the brown tree snake out of Hawaii. Because Hawaii has a special, such a special bird. And so far it's working? So far it's working. Not so much uh, with respect to, say, Florida, South Florida, and the introduction of different uh, types of pythons there. That's true. Um, I I lived there for a while, and and, um, it's it's amazing. Um, The the, the idea, the sense that they, I don't think, Scientists still have an idea of just how what the size of the population of snakes are there because you know Everglades are huge, um, and they try to have roundups and hunts and you know, and anybody can go out and catch a snake, an anaconda or a python at any python, time. Yeah. These are pythons, but their impacts are are could be dire. They the could be, place. and and I think the view now is we probably never will get rid of them, not entirely. So, so that's an interesting thing. So they they are naturally they will evolve from say an exotic to kind of a a I don't know what's the what what, what do you go from if you're an exotic you're kind of a natural a part you're an established invasive established invasive yeah and the problem often with these things is that there's there's no native predator. Uh, there are things that eat those pythons, so they get eaten by alligators, for example. There are mm-hmm. some famous pictures out there. Of right. The, but they don't have a a normal local complement of predators to control their numbers. The local prey are not sort of prepared, so to speak, evolutionarily and in terms of their individual experience to right. deal with something that big. And so they're sort of sitting ducks for an invasive predator. But over time, will that change? Will local predators say, oh, okay, a, I need to avoid this, yep. or the prey, the prey need to avoid that, so they learn uh, to adapt, to avoid avoidance adaptation. But then there are potential predators that will start to feed on the snakes. That is an excellent point, and we really don't know the answer to that yet. In fact, I think that's a question that we're, as naturalists and biologists all over the world, we're going to face in this coming century is sort of coming to grips with what What's the local role of invasives after they've established? And, mm-hmm. and in fact, how do we regard them aesthetically? Is there some point at which we should sort of come to grips with it and appreciate them? Or are we sort of in perpetuity going to have this war going on? I don't know what's going to happen. It's a very interesting question. Huh. So I'm curious to hear about your specific research. What aspect of snake or what kind of snake have you been studying? Well, the, the longest project I ever did was to watch one species of rattlesnake for 15 years. And my focus is on behavior, especially feeding and social behavior. So I wanted a situation where I could watch individual animals for long periods of their life. And I actually watched one female rattlesnake. I call her Super Female 21. I watched her for 12 years, and we had a total of 569 encounters with that snake in 12 years. Wow. We watched her go through four pregnancies, and thanks to her, we discovered that rattlesnakes have parental care. Wow. So do you think that watching these individual snakes for such a long period of time is part of the reason why you see a snake as a he or a she and, uh, you know, rather than an it and and you kind of have a little bit more of a connection, I guess, with them? I'm sure it's that way. And uh, actually in teaching people about snakes and trying to get people to appreciate snakes, I find that the most useful thing is to provide details on the sort of the life stories of individual animals. So if you take your local rattlesnake as an example, as an example 
I bet you if we went out and just looked at 100 random photographs of rattlesnakes, 90-some of them are going to be in a defensive posture with their rattle up. If I took you out to watch rattlesnakes that weren't disturbed, we'd almost never see them acting like that. In fact, in 569 encounters with that particular rattlesnake, she never rattled at me. And that included me catching her four times to hmm. change the batteries in her radio. So, wow. uh, you know, we have this notion of what they're like, and that feeds into our fears. If When you can show people that these are actually very complicated animals with likely complex inner worlds and certainly complex outer worlds, it tends to lead towards empathy. That's so interesting. Right. If, if, if you just join us, you're listening to This Green Earth, and we're speaking with Harry Green. He is a herpetologist and right now a professor at Cornell in herpetology? Harry? Well, I'm in a department called Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. Okay. I teach herpetology there. Okay, so can I I can go to Cornell and get a minor in herpetology? No, because there's <laughs> only one herpetology class, but you could take her, that herpetology class and you could do your honors thesis working on a herpetological project. That's that's fascinating. Um so let's talk about then um well, you're giving a talk. Let's talk about you're giving a talk tonight at yeah, Harry is going to be giving a talk at the Swanner Eco Center this evening at 6 p.m. So uh, tell us, you know, the the quick overview of what your talk is going to be about tonight. Well, my talk's called Natural Histories and Aesthetics. And what I'm going to talk about is how science plays into appreciating nature. Hmm. So I'm going to ask the question, you know, um, there are lots of animals that we find adorable and even beautiful. I want to ask the question, why might we care about, appreciate, and value things that aren't don't fit into that category. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about how scientific research provides the facts that allow us to have a deeper appreciation for things like frogs or snakes. In fact, I'm going to give you the op- Would you like to choose? Do you want my talk to use the frog example or the snake example? Ooh, um, I'm going to go with snakes. All right. Yep. We'll do snakes. <laughs> so I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about Super Female 21 a little bit in my talk tonight, and I'm going to hopefully convince you that she's such a great mom, you, could care, you should care more about her. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. Right, because snakes have a bad PR. Very they? bad PR. Yeah. And yes. it goes way, way back. <laughs> no doubt yes, about that. Back, back to biblical times. It, it I, from there. I claim even much farther back than that. I found examples of a, every major group of primates, lemurs, tarsiers, old world monkeys, all of them both eating and being eaten by snakes. And so I think that as primates, not just as humans, but as primates, we've had this very ancient sort of good bad relationship with snakes they're they're very interesting to look at they're easy to kill and eat but at the same time if you make a mistake they're going to kill you or eat you Some that's an them. incredible historical perspective right. on a, this it's a deep seated yeah, yeah. It's deep. so uh i'm curious you know you come from this science background but this book that you wrote uh tracks and shadows field biology is art this is not a book purely about science it's autobiographical and mm-hmm. it talks about our relationship with nature what was it that that drew you to this topic, and why did you decide to write a book like this? Well, you know, I, I actually thought of the title, and I thought about writing this book uh, when I was a very young man. I'd, I'd been an ambulance driver and an army medic. I'd been a nature nerd since I was a kid, and all these things were sort of swirling around for me, and I, I thought I wanted to pull them together, and then I quite quickly realized after I thought of the title that I wasn't old enough to write that book. And so I kept on studying snakes. I wrote my other book about snakes, and uh, then I finished the other book, and it came out, and I started thinking about going back to this. So this book's been a very long journey, and it's it's about how being a natural historian uh, allows you to sort of come to grips with some bigger questions in in uh, in life. What is you know what is our relationship with nature, and how does nature impact us that way? 
Well, it's you know it's so complex, and I think this is this is a very uh, important puzzling question for us as humans. How are we going to both be a part of nature and yet be modern humans who who are in so many ways divorced from nature? You know, how are we going to how are we going to be back out in it without trammeling it? You know, it's as if we'd somehow like to not touch it at all and never leave our footprints, and yet we want to be in it. And I think that's a real paradox, and I think it's it's actually a big deal to solve it this century if we're going to have much nature left. Do your colleagues think that you're crazy for, you know, jumping outside of the scientific realm and producing something like this? You know, I, I'm really lucky. Uh, at, at Cornell, I'm, I'm very much appreciated for doing this kind of thing. And uh, at, at universities, we're all ex- expected to do teaching, research, and outreach, and there are sort of various, various balances among that. And my colleagues I, seem to appreciate me for uh, sort of going in the teaching outreach direction as well as in the research direction. How is nature – how does nature change over time, uh, different, different, uh, oh, different generations? You know, may, uh, my parents' generation had a different viewpoint of nature versus, mm-hmm. versus mine versus uh, our children today. Sure. Have you seen, have you seen an evolution there? Absolutely. And, you know, I think the critical thing is that we we ourselves play such a, a huge role in, in everything that goes on in the planet now. So, again, that's our dilemma is that we have this enormous impact, much of it of which can be viewed as negative in terms of its effect on other species. And yet here we are. And so and, and, and now just in our lifetime, climate is clearly changing. So so what are we going to do? How are we going to regard ourselves and nature with respect to these changes and how are we going to keep caring about nature in the face of all that i think it's a really big thing to figure that out and with seven billion of us seven billion and counting and counting certainly going up uh there's going to be even more impacts that's right more connections more connections so we have to ask what would your advice be or your gifts for a, a young scientist well, I've thought about this a lot, and actually I would give them three things if I could, and I'll just, I'll just give them to you quickly. And one of them is I would send everybody out backpacking so they could feel how it is to be totally responsible to at least for a short time have everything under their own control and responsibility. Second thing I would do is I'd give every one of them a trip to Africa and put them out on foot among the megafauna. I would like people okay. to really experience what it's like to be out among things that can trample and kill you. And so I mean on foot, not in a safari van. So that you can really get a sort of visceral feel for what's what we're at risk of losing globally, and the third thing is I would I would get everybody to uh, to go hunting and kill at least one large mammal, butcher it, and eat it. And uh, I've got a veggie alternative if we have time to talk about that sometime. But, <laughs> but I would like everybody to really sort of come to grips with the responsibility and what's involved in in being a an omnivore on this planet. Right, it's that. something that we're so disconnected from. Yes, that you know many environmentalists. Have, exactly. a, have trouble coupling those two things together, yep. and and that would be another uh, conversation for another time. Maybe maybe we could talk more about that tonight. That'd be great. Okay, you want to give the details again? I do, of course. Yeah. So Swanner Eco Center, six p.m. Uh, we'll be talking with uh, Dr. Harry Green uh, about his new book, and he'll be talking about. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're making hand motions here in the studio. There'll be books there for signing. Uh, yes, and there will be books there for signing and for purchase, and uh, we hope that everyone can make it. All right. Harry, a pleasure to chat with you. hope to talk to you some more, have some more questions for you tonight. Thank you so much, and both of you. Swan, Swan Eagle Thanks for joining us. Let's take a break uh, for some underwriters, and when we come back, we'll have our second guest, Dr. Deborah Davis. It's This Green Earth. Stay tuned.
Hi, I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Tim Henney. Join us for The Mountain Life Wednesdays at 9 a.m. From the science of willpower to exploring the teenage brain. From bike fit to relationship alignment. From embracing imperfection to going gluten-free. Join us for conversations with the experts on health, fitness, and lifestyle. It's The Mountain Life Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Brought to you by Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation. Stein Erickson Lodge and Spa. Park City Clinic. Grand Valley Bank. And Park Meadows Country Club. Welcome to the Groovy Pledge Drive of Love Game. You can play along from home. Make a pledge. Score a premium thank you gift from Right at Home, Running with Ed, and Rustic Roasters. You too can be a winner when you call in and make your pledge to KPCW during the week of February 10th through the 14th. Hi, this is Alyssa Daly with Republic Services, your local recycling and garbage pickup provider and proud sponsor of KPCW's This Green Earth. All-in-one recycling is used in Summit County. Recyclables go in your larger blue or brown bin and gray is for garbage. Recycling helps keep Summit County clean. SummitCountyRecycles.org Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show on environmental issues and our connections and impacts upon the environment. Um, Deborah Lee Davis is an epidemiologist, author and founder of the Environmental Health Trust in 2007, which is a nonprofit um, that educates health professionals and the public at large on issues of environmental health. Her career has spanned all areas of academia public policy and scientific research, including serving as a senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary for Health in the Department of Health and Human Services. She's authored several books, including When Smoke Ran Like Water, a National Book Award finalist, The Secret History of the War on Cancer, and most recently, Disconnect, which details the health impacts associated with cell phone use, particularly amongst women and children. And she joins us now by phone from, I believe it's Jackson, Wyoming. Dr. Davis, are you there? Oh, she's not there. We've dropped that we, call. We lost her for a second. We'll get her right back. Um, like I said, she's um, an epidemiologist, and we're going to be talking to her about three categories, air quality and most uh, the environmental uh, health impacts associated with uh, air quality, which is timely, given this is the inversion season here Absolutely in the Salt Lake something Valley, we can relate to here. And, and in, then we'll talk Utah. a little bit. Yeah, we'll talk about water quality issues, uh, particularly in light of the chemical spill that occurred in the Kanawha Valley, uh, the Elk River, and Charleston, West Virginia, and um, and the, the impacts that have, or more importantly, may have going forward. And there's chronic impacts. And uh, that may be occurred from from the chemical that 
that was released into the, the, the river there. So we'll talk about that. And then we're going to talk about cell phones um, and, and the potential uh, harms that is creating or could create with respect to children uh, with uh, cell phone usage and the, the um, electromagnetic waves or so that come off of cell phones. So anyway, we're trying to, uh, to get a hold of her. Uh, we lost her connection. So we'll uh, get back to her and uh, when we'll get her on as soon as she comes up. I think one of the really interesting things here is her background, you know, uh, growing up um, in the mill town that experienced this 1948 Denora inversion that actually killed 20 people and sickened yeah. 7,000. And, you know, I mean, that's got to gotta pique your interest in, exactly. in I mean, that, air quality and water a, quality. That's and, an event that actually people died from. You know, some, that's always the challenge, you know, is uh, do people really die from, from air quality or the air pollution or, um, or, other, or other issues related to that? And right. I think we have her on the uh, air now. Hi. Dr. Davis, are you there? No, that's oh. not you. Okay. I tell you what, we're, let's take a break for uh, for underwriters. When we come back, we'll uh, we'll get Dr. Davis on the air. It's the screen Earth. I moved to Park City 30 years ago, but now live in the Heber Valley. You'd be amazed at how many of us old-timers from Park City who still work, play, and contribute to our community actually live in either the Camas or Heber Valleys. That's why I tune in to KPCW Local News Hour with Leslie Thatcher to find out not only what's going on in Park City, but in the outlying areas, too. Listen to the KPCW Local News Hour every weekday morning at 8 right here on your community voice. And check out the KPCW Local News Hour page on Facebook. Park City Restore is grateful for the many hands that have made it successful. Your gift of time means more affordable housing services are available locally through Habitat for Humanity. Plus, volunteering at the Restore gives you a first look at the amazing treasures donated for resale. Learn how you can get involved at habitat-utah.org. Click on the big yellow volunteer button. Habitat for Humanity of Summit and Wasatch Counties is a nonprofit organization. The Glitter Tint at Stein Erickson Lodge is a proud supporter of KPCW. The Glitter Tint restaurant offers regional American cuisine with Chef Zane Holmquist's seasonal menus. Located mid-mountain at Deer Valley Resort, the Glitter Tint serves breakfast, lunch, and dinner daily. Sunday brunch with live music. Reservations recommended. 645-6455. Welcome back to This Green Earth. And I believe we have uh, Dr. Davis online. Dr. Davis, are you there? I am. Oh, thank Fantastic. you for joining uh, <laughs> now on me on This Green Earth. Sorry about a little technical difficulties there and get, uh, getting you up. Well, we already gave you uh, your introduction. Uh, and, um, and among other things, uh, you, you, the author of this wonderful book, When Smoke Ran Like Water, what we want to do is chat with you about Air quality issues, water quality issues with respect to what occurred in the Kanawha Valley uh, earlier uh, in January. And then uh-huh. uh, spend a little time talking about cell phones 
and your latest right. book called Disconnect. So let's start with air quality. That's a big deal here, of course, in the Salt Lake Valley. It's inversion season. The last, Actually, the last four or five days have been very clear. But when an inversion comes in, uh, air pollutants get trapped and the air quality uh, decreases dramatically. You actually grew up in a town that experienced a an event so bad that people actually died from the from the event Donora Pennsylvania can you give our listeners a little summary about what happened there Yes, in 1948 just around Halloween a massive inversion of uh, hot air hit the town of Donora Pennsylvania located in the Monongahela Valley about 30 miles uh, southeast of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. At the time, the town of Denora was the center of steel production as well as zinc production. And every day, that small town burned as much coal as the larger city of Pittsburgh uh, further away, which also had multiple steel mills and other things. Right. The inversion occurred when a massive amount of cold air sat like a lid on a pot and would not let the hot air dissipate as normally it would do. When it rises, hot air cools, and it goes up. That's why a hot air balloon rises. Mm-hmm. But when you get these inversions, as you do in Utah, as you did uh, in the Monongahela Valley, it traps fumes. In the case of Utah, of course, you're talking about car fumes. In the case of my small town, in one five-day period of time, 20 people dropped dead. From this event, not from... Yes. I mean, how was that determined I mean, that's the All interesting right. thing. Normally, in five days in Nora, Pennsylvania, nobody would die. Okay. There's a normal death rate. You can calculate it. But in this particular instance, there were five deaths when none would have occurred normally mm-hmm. because it's such a small town with a small population. I went back years later and did, as I became an epidemiologist, studying the patterns of disease in time and space. We were able to calculate that not only were there excess deaths during this particular episode of bad pollution, but that overall the area was subject to higher rates of death and disease because of the repeated episodes of air pollution. This event in 1948 established without any question that a large amount of air pollution can kill some people. It laid then the next question that we have now answered, which is if a large amount of pollution can kill some people, What happens when every day you have a little bit more pollution, as you do from cars, trucks, buses, and small factories in uh, the uh, Utah Valley surrounding Salt Lake, where the mountains are just taller than the valley, and as a consequence, the fumes cannot always easily get out of the valley. And in the wintertime, the combination of wood smoke with those fumes can make some people very sick. Right. So you you know you've you've talked about this event in Denora in 1948, but there are some other uh, famous, I guess, or infamous yeah. air pollution events um, that you've taken a look at, like London and L.A. Can talk a little sure. bit about these. <clears throat> well, you see, when Denora happened in 1948, some people warned that if we didn't clean up our act, the catastrophe could hit a larger city such as London, and that's exactly what happened in 1952. In the winter there, in uh, about uh, December of 1952, a massive inversion of cold air settled over the Thames River Valley. And although the Thames River Valley was not that different in height from the surrounding hills, the difference was enough to allow the fumes from a million coal-fired stoves 
to settle over the valley. And the title of my uh, book was When Smoke Ran Like Water, because smoke ran like water. It just stayed in the air and could not dissipate. There was no place for it to go. During that particular episode, the hospitals ran out of beds, the funeral homes ran out of caskets, hmm. and the drugstores ran out of, of pharmaceuticals to treat people with respiratory diseases. There were more than 3,000 deaths that occurred above what occurred during a period of uh, about 10 days. And we went back, my colleague Michelle Bell, who is now a professor at Yale University, and I calculated that the true cost of that London pillar smog went on for months and was really 12,000 people who died above normal. Again, it's normal for some people to die, but the rate of death was so much higher than normal as a consequence in London. Now, in L.A., the situation was much more complex because, of course, it's a larger area geographically, and the El Segundo refinery would put out um, plumes of smoke, and so would cars. And people in L.A., it was a car culture. And I wrote about the fact that they were more concerned about damage to their cars than they were uh, to their lungs. They didn't make the connection that if something could eat paint off of cars, as air pollution then did, what was it doing when they breathed? That that's what's really fascinated me about uh, reading your book is that people weren't really making this connection, and that included maybe would you say public health officials themselves who weren't necessarily connecting the dots here. I think that's right. I think we often don't connect the dots. I mean, I'll give you an example of something just yesterday where that happened. Yesterday, the World Health Organization issued a report on the global cancer epidemic where it said. We've got to figure out how to prevent cancer because it's reaching epidemic proportions all around the world. And yet missing from that report was any mention of cell phone and other wireless radiation, which we know from other reports of the World Health Organization can be a cause of cancer. And so we tend to be very short-sighted in public health research in general. Now, our website at environmentalhealthtrust.org has information on all of these things, and I would invite your listeners to look for that. But yes, um, you know, we are imperfect, and we tend to look at what's in front of our face. And with pollution that you cannot see, we tend not to appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, no one writes in their obituary that they passed away due to the uh, effects, you know, the ongoing effects from air pollution, right? That's not, a coroner is never going to assign that as a cause of death, right? It's always Probably true. But in Japan, they actually have air pollution districts where people get compensated if they die of certain diseases or develop certain diseases because it's been recognized that historically the air pollution there was so bad. But but generally, we do not have that as as a matter of, of policy. And it becomes, you know, it is challenging because, of course, we live and die in a, an environment with many different things in it, and you can seldom attribute the cause of death to any one thing, except if it's a unique disease like mesothelioma, which we believe is uniquely caused by asbestos exposure. Mm-hmm. Well, th- one of the more uh, resonating sentences in your book was th- this, to kind of paraphrase it, there has never been a Surgeon General's report on the health effects from air pollution. Should there be, uh, and, and could there be? Certainly there could now be, without any question. Uh, And so now, yesterday, the World Health Organization recognized that air pollution is one of the preventable causes of uh, cancer today. But uh, no, there has not been. And nor has there ever been a Surgeon General's report on cell phone and wireless radiation, despite growing evidence 
uh, that this can be damaging to the body and ways that medicine is now using this radiation to treat and find cancer. So let's talk a little bit about the cell phone radiation and its impacts on uh, public health. Uh, give us a brief overview of some of the research that's been done and what do we know about these impacts? Well, first of all, we know this. A cell phone is a two-way microwave radio. It's called radio frequency energy, but the emission from a cell phone is microwave radiation. If you have an iPhone now, the Apple has put a warning in the phone. If you have a phone, you go to settings, you go to general, you go to about, and scroll all the way down to legal, and then RF exposure, you will see that it tells you that if you put the phone on your body, you exceed the as-tested exposure guideline. In fact, the new, this is news now, the new Apple 5S has a proximity sensor in it. So whenever you hold the phone next to you and it feels the heat of your body and you're on a call, it automatically reduces the radiation. Now that's all good because it means the company recognizes they've got to reduce the radiation to the body. But the reality is people are not aware of this. They're not aware of this. No kidding. Our jaws dropped when you said, you know, this exceeds the, you know, radiation limit. When you hold it against you, meaning up against my ear. Yes, but also in, in your pocket. If you have it in your pocket, when it's on, you are exceeding the as-tested exposure guidelines. You have in Salt Lake one of the world's best experts in this field, Om oh. Gandhi in electrical engineering. And Dr. Gandhi showed that putting a phone in your shirt pocket or your pants pocket will give you four to eight times more radiation than holding it outside or have, using it as I use mine on my desk or putting it on airplane mode, which is the safest way to carry it. Of course, when it's on airplane mode, you cannot get or send signals. You can, down, you can use information that's downloaded into it. Here's what we know. The World Health Organization appointed a committee of experts in 2011 to evaluate all of the evidence at that time about the carcinogenicity of wireless radiation and cell phones. And they concluded then that cell phone and wireless radiation should be classified as a possible human carcinogen, Mm. the same category as lead or DDT. Now, I published an article later with some of the world's top epidemiologists, which looked at additional studies produced by Dr. Leonard Hardell of Sweden. And we concluded that based on newer evidence, cell phone radiation should be considered a probable human carcinogen. Now, a possible human carcinogen, like lead or DDT, is something you would never give a child to play with. And yet people are giving babies iPhone plastic rattle cases and iPad teething rings so that they can protect the phone from the baby. And they say on the packaging from Fisher-Price, for six months and older. Now, this is inane. Uh, The American Academy of Pediatrics has written to the FCC urging that they revise their 17-year-old approach to cell phone radiation. It's been 17 years since standards were set for cell phones. Would you want to fly in an airplane that was adhering to 17-year-old safety standards or drive a car with 17-year-old safety standards? Of course not. So we really need, and I really welcome your interest here, to make sure the public understands there are ways to practice safe phone. We're not opposed to technology, but we've got to be smarter about how we use it. Among the studies that have been done are studies from the Cleveland Clinic and Australia's National Center for Research on Male Health that have found that men who keep cell phones in their pocket have about half as much sperm as men who do not. 
Oh and that if you take sperm from healthy men and put it in a test tube, and one test tube gets exposed to phone radiation and the other does not, that within uh, a short period of time, the cell phone-exposed sperm show fewer cells and more damage on the DNA of their mitochondria, which is critical to the health and integrity of the sperm. Right. So is there a, a resource for the public to go find out how much their how much radiation their cell phone is putting out or uh you know what are these safe phone practices? Uh Well, the resource for safe phone practices there's there is our website which is environmentalhealthtrust.org which has lots of information on that. There are other websites as well that provide information including ewg.org. But as to radiation emissions from phones No matter what you find out, it can be misleading because if your phone is used in a rural area where you have few bars, no matter how much radiation the phone is supposed to use when it's tested, it will put out the maximum amount. So the worst time to use a phone is when the signal is weak because it will drain your battery and half of the signal gets into you because the battery, the um, antenna on the phone is symmetrical. Okay, okay. If you just join us, we're speaking with Dr. Deborah Davis. She is an epidemiologist, uh, founder of the Environmental Health Trust, great website, and also the author of several books, including her latest one, Disconnect, The Truth About Cell Phone Radiation. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Getting rid of my cell phone or what, what, no, no, what's no, the no, best look, way? Okay, cell so, phones save lives. Yes. They're, the technology has revolutionized commerce. But we need to be smart about what we're doing. Exactly. I was on the phone this morning with India, where they have a campaign. They have reduced radiation from their towers um, to a tenth of what it was. And they are campaigning broadly, because in India, the urban density is such that you can have a perfectly placed cell phone tower right outside your bedroom window in these dense urban environments. So we need to be smart about where we locate towers. Ironically, and this is a hard one, we need more towers with fewer power. Okay, Mm. we we need to lower the power and increase the number of towers. And that way we'll have better cell phone reception and less exposure in the general environment. These are not easy concepts to get across in a short radio interview, quite frankly. I invite you to take a look at our website, which has frequently asked questions. We have a new campaign called Save the Girls because we've identified working with some of the nation's top breast surgeons, unusual cases of breast cancer in young women who have tucked their cell phones right into their bras. And we will make sure women know cell phone manufacturers say, do not do this. Wow. So how is the U.S. doing in relation to other countries in looking at this issue? It sounds like India's got a campaign going. Does the U.S. have something equivalent? Well, we are working with a number of other groups um, on this issue, and we're pleased that right now, as we speak, in Maine, there are, uh, before the Maine legislature, there is a proposal to mandate that when you buy a phone, you are told to read the manufacturer's safety advice. And this is considered, by the way, a radical step to ask to tell people to read the safety advice, because it's buried in phone, as I told you before. You can find it inside your iPhone. All smartphones come with warnings about using them safely Mm -hmm. that very few people are aware of. Uh, There's a bill in Hawaii that is before the state Senate now that uh, also is requiring warnings 
on, uh, on cell phones. And we think that these are positive steps, but at the national level, what we need is more of a public campaign so that people understand cell phones are valuable, but we need to make them safer. We can do that in three ways. First of all, you right now, no matter how much you've kept your phone in your pocket and on your body, stop doing that and your DNA repair will kick in and you will not have to worry about being damaged forever. Okay. Secondly, software is being changed. So signals are not being pinged from your phone to a tower as they are now more than once a second. And hardware can be changed so that antennas are designed and cases are designed to reduce exposure. So changes in manufacture and design of phones are happening. The problem is the industry is in conflict about whether they want to tell people that they're making safer phones because the lawyers know that they should be responsible for their past failures to make safer phones. Because this is not new. The information about the dangers of microwave radiation have been around for decades. And the fact is that the earliest cell phones and the early cell phone testers warned about this, and those warnings in industry were ignored. That's the reality. Does the same thing go with laptops? Laptops that have wireless antennas, they don't call them laptops anymore, if you noticed. Right. You know why? They're not supposed to be used on the lab. Exactly. Okay. They are tested at 20 centimeters away from the body. In fact, the iPad comes with a proximity sensor, just like the iPhone 5S, and it automatically reduces radiation when it feels it's next to a warm body. Okay, so 20 centimeters, roughly 8 inches. That's it. That means on the desk or on a pillow or on a book. It means never directly next to your body. On my lap. Uh-uh. Like I was doing uh, and will not do well, like, anymore. And, and like, like the world does, yes. Yeah. But again, I really want to stress this. Other evidence has shown literally that things like broccoli and green tea um, can reverse or even prevent damage from uh, cell phone radiation and for other things that we know can damage ourselves. In fact, melatonin has been shown to be very potent. It's a very, very strong antioxidant that can repair damage throughout our body. When do you make melatonin? When you sleep in the dark. So I thought I need to write an, another book called um, Sleep in the Dark, Eat Your Broccoli, and Stop Worrying. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like good advice for all of us. <laughs> it is, but most people don't realize how important it is to sleep in darkness because it's when the body is in complete dark that we make melatonin. Hmm. What? Okay. A you wealth know, of interesting you know, knowledge. Dr. Davis, I, I apologize. We're, we're about running out of time. We're not going to be able to get to the water quality issues. We'll have to talk another time about water quality issues. Well, I'll the just cell phone thing. tell you that the West Virginia problem would not have happened were it not for the fact that the Clean Air Act required burner, burning coal more cleanly. So they now use this chemical to put on the coal to make it cleaner, which ended up getting into the water. And this issue of transferring pollution from the air to the water is a growing national problem that has not been adequately addressed by regulatory officials as well. But I, I recognize we're co- talking about a lot of material here. I would invite your listeners to look at our website, to like us on Facebook, to join the campaign for safer phones, and to help us get information out, because we want the world to be as safe as possible. We recognize there's no such thing as absolute safety, and life is full of risks and trade-offs. But sure. people have a right to know that they can use cell phones more safely, and I'd Welcome a chance to talk with you again about these issues. Well, we certainly will. I like your Save the Girls campaign, but I suggest that uh, 
You also have a Save the Boys campaign and keep your <laughs> cell phone out of your pocket. Well, you know, uh, that is actually, as a matter of fact, we have a Save the Males poster. If uh, you go to our website <laughs> and click on Downloads, you'll see Save the Males. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> well, we all right? we appreciate yes. that info. Thank we will uh, link to it all from our Facebook page, so our listeners can find you easily. And we right. want to thank you for joining us. Yeah, Doctor. Well, thank you guys. Keep up the good work. Thank you. We'll be in touch. All right. Uh, bye let's, bye. Let's take a break for uh, some last uh, underwriters, uh, and we'll be back to wrap up. It is this green earth. You to listen Monday mornings at 9 after NPR News to Mountain Money, KPCW's show about making money, spending money, and investing it wisely. You'll hear from local entrepreneurs and national figures, anyone with a good story to tell about how to survive and thrive in the marketplace. Mountain Money. We'll keep it simple and useful every Monday at 9. Brought to you by Park City Realty Group, Mountain West Bank, Park City Chamber Bureau, and Iron Mountain Group. I'm John Wells. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Join us for Cool Science Radio Thursdays at 9 a.m. From the discovery of new dinosaurs to the science of an avalanche. From the secret technology behind Facebook to nanotechnology. Deciphering science and tech in an entertaining, amusing, and accessible way. It's Cool Science Radio. If we understand it, so can you. Thursdays at 9 a.m. only in Park City, only on KPCW. Brought to you by Peak Art and Frame. Welcome back to This Green Earth. We are here to wrap up uh, another week's show. And uh, we want to start by thanking the guests that we had on the show today. Our first guest was uh, author and professor Harry Green, who joined us in the studio today to talk about his new book, Tracks and Shadows, Field Biology is Art. And he'll be giving a talk at the Swanner Eco Center tonight at 6 p.m. about some of the material in his new book. Right. Uh, try to get down there. It'd be a great, right. great discussion. Also, thanks to Dr. Deborah Davis, epidemiologist and author, uh, and uh, founder of the envir- uh, the health uh, the website environmentalhealthtrust.org. Go there and learn more about, among other things, cell phone radiation. What a conversation! We're going to have her back on to talk about other <laughs> environmental health air impacts. quality to cell phone cell radiation phone out of your out Public of your pocket. Health. Oh my God! All right, thanks to our underwriters for whom this show would not be possible. They include Jones, Waldo, Hobrook, and McDonough. Republic Services, Habitat for Humanity's Restore, Rocky Mountain Power, San Francisco Design, and Prudential Utah Real Estate. Of course, you can join us on Facebook at KPCW This Green Earth. That's right. Or email us your comments at thisgreenearth at kpcw.org. This is KPCW Park City. You're listening to, uh, it's only in... Only in Park, Park City, City, only on KPCW. Thanks, no, that's your line. I should <laughs> stay, stay away from that. Join us next week. Uh, will be our uh, pledge drive.